Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here, and I'm hoping that everything is working back to normal. Past couple of weeks have been filled with uh, interruptions of our radio stream, and uh, Paul and I got together this morning, tried to fix it before. Bloodlines weren't able to quite fix it, but Paul was able to fix the uh, garbled sound of the stream during the show, and he basically told me that uh, he, now he understands what I've been going through with uh, Butt, and it's not Butt's fault. Butt is uh, actually a, a very solid, stable system. However, whenever Windows does a, an update, it disrupts all the sound settings on my computer. And Paul realized it did the same thing to speak free radio, <laughs> okay? So, uh, so he had to make those corrections on the fly. And the sound cleared up as the show went along. So now he knows that he has to go in and correct the, the settings for the audio after every Microsoft update. It's a hassle, but uh, we, Microsoft is the only platform that, that uses uh, th- these types of sound settings, right? So actually, he's got that fixed. And, uh, and as I mentioned to you earlier, for those of you, uh, but, but most of you probably weren't even there, we're going to change our schedule of shows. We're going to streamline Eurofolk Radio to just the, those live shows that occur during the week, which Roger Sales, uh, Radio Ranch, and uh, Rick Tyler on his morning show. And uh, Brother Abear is going to have his show in between. So it's just going to be a, a short lineup during the week because most people listen to the downloads of our shows anyhow. We get more listeners that way. And the only live stuff besides those two will be my shows on the weekends. So the Always Covenant People Friday, Genesis to Revelation Saturday morning, Restoration Hour Saturday evening, and, of course, Bloodlines and, and Voice of Christian Israel on Sundays. And everything else will be prerecorded. Okay, thank you, Bill Gates. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Bill Gates. Yeah, do something good for us once in a while. Now, don't just try to kill us with your vaccines and uh, enslave us with your your uh, what do you call it high tech invasiveness of our lives, right? That, that, and that's all it is. It's Jewish invasiveness of our lives. So that being said, uh, I want to go into uh, uh, Galatians three sixteen. Also, I should also mention that I won't be around next weekend. So there will not be any live shows next weekend except for Bloodlines, which will be hosted by Paul English and with uh, Michael Sweet. I'm not sure who's going to do the hosting because uh, it may be hosted by Michael Sweet with guest host Paul English. We'll see how that works out. In any case, it will be on StreamYard, and uh, I think we have all of the audio issues fixed so that it will stream on Eurofolk Radio simultaneously. So uh, we'll, And then from then on, it's going to be rearranging the schedule to, uh, as I just said, to streamline the operation. And uh, we're going to be cutting out uh, Jeff Rents in the evenings and a lot of the other stuff. And so we may be streaming SFR, uh, you know, 24-7, with the exception of our show's but I found that's problematic too. If that's problematic, we just won't do it, and we'll just have a limited scheduling because we're going to be reaching much more people 
with the advancements that are being made with uh, Speak Free Radio. We're going to be piggybacking on other platforms. And Roger Sales show, we, they already did a test. Paul and his tech assistant have already done a test uh, where Roger Sales show on another platform will be able to reach 50,000 listeners. And so that will be awesome for all of our shows. All of our shows will be reaching more and more people. And uh, since our live programming is limited, that uh, you know, it would be nice to have that. And also our pre-recorded shows can go out to platforms that host way more listeners. And we're looking ultimately to be rebroadcasting on Gab, which reaches millions. Okay? So this message will get out. We've been... You know, struggling along with low finances. And so it would always help if uh, some of you could send us a donation. And uh, we got a new email address. I have to, uh, uh, not email address, uh, but uh, mailing address. And I have to update uh, Anglo-Saxon-Israel as well. But uh, ANP is the uh, father outfit uh, the business end of Eurofolk Radio is American National Publishing. So if you want to send us a donation, send it to ANP, Post Office Box 3192, Harrison, Arkansas, 72601. Again, that's ANP, Post Office Box 3192, Harrison, Arkansas, 72601. Now, I put a link to this article and it's a general commentary on Galatians 3.16. And I'm going to be focusing on Barnes' notes on the whole Bible. Because this is a fairly comprehensive discussion oh, excuse me, of that one verse. Of that one verse. And it says here, Now to Abraham and his seed. And that, that's... That's the title, and he simply says after that, to him and his posterity. Now, this phrase is found many times in Genesis. The first instance is Genesis 12, 3, where it says, to thy posterity, to your descendants, and to thy descendants after thee, are all these promises and covenants and the, uh, and the uh, prophecies intended for your descendants. There's nothing in Genesis 12:3 that says anything about Jews. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, can you believe this? The word Jew does not even exist in the, in the Bible until 2 Kings 16:6. So the entire Torah does not contain the word Jew. So where do the Jews get off claiming that that verse is about them when they're not even mentioned in the entire Torah? Because it's talking about all of Abraham's descendants through his three wives, Hagar, Sarah, and Keturah. By the way, Brother Rick couldn't be with us today. He's uh, out of town. And so we'll, we'll, no, well, we'll have to pick it up in two weeks because I won't be in town next week. So but we've been doing these studies on Galatians uh, 3 and 4 and uh, in great detail ex- exposing the fact 
that all of Paul's writing, for that matter, not just Galatians and Romans, are exclusive covenant literature. And the only reason anybody thinks differently is because basically the two words, Jew and Gentile, have been placed into the position of better translations. Those words were not available, especially Gentile, is not even a Greek or Hebrew word. It's a Latin word that takes the place of the word nations in both languages, both Hebrew and Greek. But in in the Greek, the word is ethnos, from which we get the word ethnicity from. And the strongest definition of that word is race, combination. Race, comma, nation. And it's often translated as nation, but it's always almost always translated as Gentile, or at least half the time translated as Gentile. Why is this? Well, this is a Masoretic insertion even into the Strong's Concordance, where it doesn't belong, because there is no, there is no word that has the meaning of non-Jew, <laughs> which is an inserted definition into Strong's Concordance. And over the years, uh, myself, Brother Hebert, and... Uh, pretty much all of the show hosts that have been on Eurofolk Radio have pointed these things out, that these translations have been doctored by the Masoretes of the Jewish, you know, the Jewish faction of Bible, I can't even call it scholarship, uh, redaction, <laughs> right? The Masoretes are, are the ones who redacted the Hebrew Old Testament, deleted as many verses as they could of the proposition or the prophecies that Yahshua is our Messiah, etc., etc. And so they they didn't change the language of the Hebrew text. That still exists. They didn't need to do that. What they did instead was they peddled to the King James Translation Committee and other Christian scholars the idea that they are the Israelites of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and because they are the so-called Israelites of the Old Testament, and they know Hebrew, that Christian scholars should take their word for it as to how certain words should be translated. And that is what has been happening in biblical scholarship for the last two or three hundred years, and even affected Strong's, you know, many of the entries in Strong's Concordance. Okay, So the verse in question is Galatians 3.16, so let me go there. But first, actually, I have this other verse up uh, in First uh, Chronicles 16, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote verses 13 through 20. And it's very important, because this is where we, the Israelite people, are referred to as an anointed people. An anointed people. And this fact will be demonstrated in Galatians 3.16 and 3.29 that, that those, those two verses are horribly mistranslated because they do not recognize the fact that those two verses are about, about the anointed people, Israel, and not about the one single person, Yahshua Messiah. And I will explain that very thoroughly as we go through these verses. And it's actually impossible 
that the, those two verses are about the one person, the Messiah. No, those verses are about Israel collectively. Now, and this this verse sets the precedent for the fact that the word anointed can apply exclusively to the people of Israel and and collectively, exclusively and collectively about Israel. Okay, so I'm going to start reading in verse 13. O ye seed, and seed here is Zerah, the definition of Zerah, the Hebrew word for seed, which also in the Greek it becomes sperma, but it's the same word in, in the Hebrew. Figuratively, fruit, plant, sowing time, posterity. That's the, that's the word I want everybody to think about. Posterity. And I'm just going to use the word posterity from now on in discussion, whether I'm talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now, that, this actually verifies what that, uh, Michael and I were talking about this morning, about the word posterity and the figurative and literal definitions of these words. So, because the next installment of this definition of Zerah is carnally, child, fruitful, seed time, sowing time. So again, this word seed in the Hebrew can be used of human seed and of plant seed. Okay? The context will tell you whether it's one or the other. And as we found out in Genesis 3.15, that you have different definitions of seed, Zerah, in three different occasions in one verse where they're used in different ways in the same verse. Okay? Some figurative, some literal. Okay? So that's the point. And you have to use discernment and look at the context. What's the context talking about to determine what the subject matter is, okay? So here, obviously, we're talking about the Adamic bloodline of Israel. Absolutely no doubt about it. So, repeating verse 13, O ye posterity of Israel, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He, that is, he is Yahweh our God. His judgments are, are in all the earth. Be ye mindful always of his covenant. Covenant, that's an exclusive contract between whatever the parties are on both sides of the contract. And the definition here is berit, or berit, in the sense of cutting a compact, like you cut a deal, you make a deal, because made by passing between pieces of flesh. You have to go back to the Abrahamic covenant where he cut the bull in half and the parties to the contract walked between the two halves of the sacrificial animal. The implication being, should I be killed like this animal if I fail to keep my part of the contract? And continuing with the definition. Confederacy. Covenant. League, it is, in fact, well, compact is just as strong as contract. Because you make a compact with somebody, you intend to keep it. And if you don't keep it, you're in trouble, all right? The word, be mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. 
not for just that time, folks. His direct descendants, because this covenant was first made to Abraham, and through his three wives, to all of his descendants of Keturah and Hagar. However, these these promises were made separately to Isaac, leaving out Keturah's descendants and Hagar's descendants, and then separately to Jacob, also leaving out Keturah's descendants and Hagar's descendants, getting more and more exclusive until we reach Jacob and his 12 sons, and these covenants end with the Jacob and his 12 sons and the descendants. So we, in identity, we Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, and Caucasian people, are the party of the second part to these covenants. Yahweh is the party of the first part, and Yahshua is the mediator of the covenant. Okay, got it? Yahweh is the party of the first part. When he dies, the will is read. We all show up after the funeral for the reading of the will, and Yahshua is the one who reads the will, and we inherit the kingdom. That's how this works, folks. This is all very legal language, if you understand it correctly. Verse 16, Even of the covenant which he made with Abraham, and of his oath unto Isaac, and hath confirmed the same to Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Twice it's told we're told it's an everlasting covenant. But with whom is this covenant made? The Chinese? The Amerindians? No, only with us. We're the only ones with whom these covenants are made. So we are the only exclusive recipients of these covenants, folks. Absolutely no doubt about it. That's the way this works. This is legal language, and it applies exclusively and collectively to us. Okay? So let's continue here. Saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. Now, to whom was the land of Canaan given by Yahweh? Well, Abraham did not inherit it. Isaac did not inherit it. Even Jacob did not inherit it. But the children of Israel did inherit it. He gave it to us with all the pricks and thorns and everything else, good and bad, that went with it. It was given to us, the people of Israel. The lot of your inheritance. It was prophesied to Abraham that his offspring would inherit it, and we are those offspring. And that land still belongs to us, even though the Jews have claimed it. But that's a false claim, and we know it is. Continuing, verse 19, when ye were but few, even a few, and strangers in it, and when they went from nation to nation, and from one kingdom to another, people, he suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, ye reproved kings for their sakes. Okay, Yahweh reproved kings for our sakes, for the people of Israel. Then he says, saying, verse, verse 22, this is the big one, underline this and rememberize it, rememberize it, say, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. 
Who are the anointed people? Who, who are the anointed here? The whole context of this verse is the people of Israel. And it's not referring to the Messiah. It's not referring to King David. It's not referring referring to any priests even, but only to the people of Israel and his prophets. And his prophets were not always priests. So we think in terms of only that group, the, the kings and the priests being anointed. But that's not the case. And of course, the Messiah is the anointed one. And sometimes you have to look at the context to determine whether it's actually speaking about the anointed one, our Messiah, Yahshua, or a king, or a priest, or the people of Israel taken collectively. Okay? And of course, that is Mashiach in, in the Hebrew language. Okay? And it means anointed. That's what the word means. Touch not mine anointed. And usually a consecrated person as a king, priest, or saint, specifically the Messiah, anointed Messiah. But they left out what this this verse here is saying. We're also talking about an anointed people. And Strong's has made an error by not including that as part of the definition. Okay, so let's go to the article that I have linked in the chat room about this about this subject. Okay, so let's go to it. Okay, what happened to it? I got too many windows open. Why is Amazon is interfering <laughs> with my broadcast? All right, so I'm going to have to go into the chat room again and get the link to the article. Yeah, study light, here it is. So I'll just click on the link and go to it. So this is studylight.org, verse-by-verse Bible commentary, Genesis, I'm sorry, Galatians 3.16, which reads, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That should be clear enough, folks. And that's Zerah. His offspring, collectively, his posterity. Not to one person, but to his entire posterity taken collectively. That's what it says. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his posterity. All of them, all of us, taken collectively. He does not say, and to seeds, posterities, if you use the word posterity, it becomes clear. We're talking about different possible posterities. What Paul is saying here, it's not given to all candidates for posterity. Only one candidate for posterity, that is, the only exclusive direct descendants of Abraham and nobody else. That's what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about Israel, a bunch of Israelites as potential seeds in the plural. He's not saying that. He's talking about collectively potential posterities. That's what he's talking about here. Okay? I hope that's not confusing. But the way they translate it does make it confusing. So he does not say, and to posterities, meaning different posterities than the one true chosen people posterity, as referring to many posterities, 
but rather to one posterity and to your posterity, that is, Christ. Now, this is a problem because they are translated into the singular with a capital C, implying that the the promises were given to Yahshua Messiah. Now, let's think about this, folks. It was Israel that was promised a Messiah, not Yahshua. Yahshua is the Messiah. He was prophesied to come to redeem us from our sins. Did Jesus have any sins to be redeemed? This makes absolutely no sense. Now, Paul, at the beginning of this verse, says, this, these promises were spoken to Abraham and his descendants and to nobody else. He does not say to many different posterities of descendants, as, as of many, but rather only one posterity, and to your posterity that is anointed. Lowercase a. This is not a reference to Jesus Christ. This is not a reference to Yahshua Messiah because the promises were not made to him. You're talking about a brutally, idiotic, nonsensical, illogical translation of Galatians 3.15. So as I just proved to you from 1 Chronicles 16.22 We, the Israel people, are considered an anointed people. To whom were the promises made, folks? This anointed people are the seed that he is talking about. How can they get this wrong? Somebody deliberately changed this. (laughs) Right. Yeah, 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 seven of none. Who has to die in order for Israel to receive the promised Savior, right? So, well, so Jesus died, right? And is he receiving the promises up in heaven? No, he was sinless. He didn't need to be redeemed, okay? This is the absurdity of this translation. Actually, let me go into Galatians. I keep on confusing those two terms. Sorry, folks. We're switching back and forth between Galatians and Genesis. But I'm going to go to Galatians 3.15, the verse immediately preceding verse 16, because this is a crucial verse too, which proves absolutely what I've been saying here. Brethren, I speak after the matter of Adamites, though it be but an Adamite's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no Adamite disannulleth or addeth thereto. Okay, what he's saying is, well, there's a a contract between Yahweh God and the people of Israel, the anointed people of Israel. And what is he saying here? If it's confirmed, or when it's confirmed, no one can annul the contract or add it or change it. That's exactly what he's saying in Galatians 3.15. Nobody can change the terms of this contract. That is the nature of all contracts. The party of the first part, 
the party of the second part, and whatever the contract itself states is between these two parties and nobody else. No other person in the world, no Chinaman, no African, no Amerindian, nobody else in the world can change the terms of this con. This cannot be universalized as the churches constantly universalize the language of our scriptures. How do they change it? Well, by changing the last word in verse 16. By changing it that the, the promised, the promises are not made to us, but to Jesus Christ, which is ridiculous. And then, of course, they go on to say in various verses of Scripture, which aren't true, that Jesus came to save everyone. No, he did not. He came, I come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What don't you understand? So verse 17. And this I say, that the covenant was confirmed before of God in Christ. The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Nothing can make the promise of none effect. All that Paul is saying is here that the sacrificial law, which came later because of our unbelief and because of our sinfulness, that does not disannul this covenant, which was made through Abraham. Okay, so that the Levitical law has nothing to do with this promise. And then the important word in the next verse is, for if the inheritance, that's what we're talking about here, who gets to inherit the kingdom? To whom was the kingdom promised? What did Jesus say to the Canaanite woman in Matthew fifteen twenty four? She wanted a blessing. She wanted her daughter to be healed. And he said to her, I cannot give you the children's bread. What do you want from me, woman? She persisted. I want you to heal my daughter. I said, but it's not your bread. She said, truth, Lord, but even the dogs eat of the crumbs of the covenant. Okay, well, what's the promise? That the whole world would be blessed by us, through us, if we can keep the covenant. To the extent that we keep the covenant, the world is blessed. To the extent that we fail to keep the covenant, we also are cursed. Okay? Inheritance. This is about inheritance. And then he says, but God, at Theos, Yahweh, gave it to Abraham and, of course, his descendants by promise. So the ritual law has nothing to do with the covenants made through Abraham. And that's all that verse is saying. It doesn't say the law has been done away with, as a lot of these ignorant pastors of Judeo-Christianity claim. All right? So, let's scroll down. If you open up that uh, link to studylight.org and scroll down to the Barnes, the Barnes commentary, or is it Clark's? Wait a minute, let me see. No, I'm pretty sure it's God's Law, Kaufman's, Barnes, okay, here's Barnes. It's about the fourth fourth uh, commentary on this verse. Now to Abraham and his seed, that is to him and his posterity, beautiful, he uses the right word, he uses the word posterity, were the promises made. The promise here referred to was that which is recorded in Genesis 22:17 to 18, quote, "In blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy posterity 
as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And in thy posterity shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, can this possibly be about the Jews? What nation on the earth has been blessed by Jews? It's ridiculous, folks. Absolutely ridiculous. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. So, here is where Barnes starts the commentary on this very problematic verse. First, he iterates what it seems to say. And here we go. He does not use the plural term at the end as of one, but as as if the promise extended to many persons. But it does extend to to many persons. Paul would not contradict himself. Somebody has doctored the translation, and possibly even doctored the Greek, right? So he said, uh, not too many posterities, but only one posterity. So he already recognizes that there's a problem here. Anyway, but he speaks in the singular number, the number one, as if only one was intended. But Paul clearly is not saying that. He just told us in Genesis, uh, sorry, Galatians 3.15 that no one can change the terms of the contract. And that is true of all contracts. No universalist can come along and say and replace Israel with the word Gentile, even though that's what the translators do way more often than not. All right? Then he says, such is Paul's interpretation. Now, wait a minute. How do you know it's an interpretation? How do you, how do you know that it's not a, an interpolation? That is a deliberate mistranslation of the text. How do you know it's not an interpolation? Let's continue. Such is evidently the sentiment, evidently, he shows his hesitancy to accept this translation. Barnes is dealing with this verse very carefully because it has problems. All right, let's continue. Such is Paul's interpretation. Such is evidently the sentiment which he intends to convey. I say, no, that's not his intention at all. And the argument which he intends to urge. Again, he's thinking that Paul intends to do this. I say, no, he has no such intention. It's the translators who intend this. He designs evidently, again, he uses the evidently three times to be understood as affirming that in the use of the singular number, sperma, in seed instead of the plural, spermata, seeds, Okay, so let's read it in the Greek. He says, unto one sperma, as opposed to spermata, in the collective sense of different kinds of seed, different kinds of posterity. This is what Paul is saying. The covenants are exclusive to one sperma, not to many spermata. He says there is a fair ground of argument to demonstrate that the promise related to Christ or the Messiah, and to him primarily, if not exclusively. Now, of course, that is how the verse is interpreted by people. But that's not what Paul is saying. 
Now, no one probably ever read this passage without feeling a difficulty. Well, the Judeos have. They read it all the time, and there's no problem. What's the problem? There's no problem. We teach that Jesus Christ is the one to whom the promises were made. Really? Is that what you teach? Is that what you think you teach? No. The promises were made to Israel collectively. Period. And without asking himself whether this argument is sound, that's true of all Judeo-Christians. They never ask themselves whether this is a sound argument. Somebody preached it from the pulpit. That must be true. And is worthy a man of candor, and especially of an inspired man. No, it's not worthy, worthy of such a man. Some of the difficulties in the passage are these, and you will never get a Judeo-Christian pulpit bastard to analyze this verse to find out whether it's correctly translated. That'll never happen, folks. Never happen. <laughs> they are, well, not they're not all perverts. <laughs> they're not all perverts, but they're reprobates. That's the word I was using trying to look for reprobates they're definitely reprobates okay number one the promise referred to in genesis seems to have related to the posterity of abraham at large well yeah exactly abraham and his posterity (laughs) at large to all three descendants at this point the genesis promises made through abraham to abraham are to all his descendants through abraham uh, sorry Hagar, Keturah, and Sarah. And each one of those groupings had voluminous posterity in the millions. It is spoken of Rebekah, be thou the mother of thousands of millions. That's billions, folks. Have there ever been a billion Jews ever? Collectively? <laughs> We are as the sand and the sea and the stars of heaven. That's how many Israelites there have been. And if you count all three genomes through Keturah and Hagar, you you triple it. These are the white people of Mesopotamia. That's who these people are. The white people of Mesopotamia, all three genomes through those three wives. Now, as we all know, and Brother Rick and I covered this extensively, The children of Hagar were excluded from the promises when Hagar was sent away. Even though she came back, she was still only Sarah's servant. And then the Keturahites were sent away so that they would not interfere with Isaac's covenant. Okay? Posterity. So then these covenants proceed exclusively through Isaac and Jacob, and finally through Jacob's 12 sons. That's it. Nobody else is ever ever counted a a child of the promise or a child of the covenant henceforth. There's no more extension of this promises to other people. That's it. The 12 tribes of Israel. Number two. Okay, let me finish this. So, uh, this, his descendants to all his seed or posterity. That's to whom these promises were made. Such would be the fair and natural interpretation should it be read by hundreds or thousands of persons who had never heard of the interpretation here put upon it by Paul. That's exactly right. No one would have dreamed to relating this this bunch of promises and prophecies and putting them upon 
one person, namely Christ. No, he was, the, the promises weren't even made to him. He didn't need to have any promises made to him. Because he, as Paul clearly states also in Galatians 3, is the mediator of the covenants. Now, if you're at a will reading and your father dies and all the heirs are collectively in the reading room and there's a guy at the table, a lawyer, typically, doesn't have to be a lawyer, but there's a lawyer there. He's the mediator of the covenant. He reads the will. Every heir or potential heir gets to know how much money or whatever they get was left. Their names are in the will. Whose name is in the will, ladies and gentlemen? Whose name is in the will? None other than Israel, folks. There are no other name mentioned heirs when the will is read. Number two, the argument of the apostle seems, again, he's puzzled by this translation, which is good. It means he's an honest, <laughs> an honest analyst of these verses. The argument of the apostle seems to proceed on the supposition that the word seed, sperma that is, is posterity. Yes, he does proceed on that assumption. He's not even supposing it. That's what he means by it. That is posterity. Amen. That here cannot refer to more than one person. That's the supposition that everybody else goes by. That the last, that the seed, that which is one, which, which is how it's translated there, is only one person. No, that's what everybody assumes. No, but that's not the, that's not the case. But it does denote posterity at large, to refer to descendants without limitation, just as the word posterity is with us. And it is a fact, moreover, that the word is not used in the plural at all to denote a posterity, the singular from being constantly employed for that purpose. Okay? So the word in, in the Greek, sperma, is used to denote posterity, the collective posterity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what it means. To collect, it's not posterities as of many. It is one posterity as of one collective group of people, namely Israel. Now I wonder, because I didn't have a chance to read through this before during today's show, I wonder if he even admits that the word Christ, the last word in the verse, is actually a bad translation. I'm not sure if he goes that far. But let's continue. Anyone who will open Trom's concordance to the Septuagint, or Schmidt's concordance to the New Testament, these are two concordances I never even heard of, will see the most ample confirmation of this remark. Indeed, the plural form of the word is never used except in this place in Galatians. That's why, the, the reason why Paul uses it here is to differentiate between different posterities. That's why it's used here. And the only reason it's used here. The difficulty, therefore, is that the remark here of Paul appears to be a trick of argument or a quibble more worthy of a trifling Jewish rabbi 
Then of a serious reasoner or inspired man, are you referring to Judeo-Christians as Jewish rabbis? Or Judeo-Christian pulpit bastards as rabbis? He's suggesting it, isn't he? Right? They're saying, this is a trick. It's a trick, folks. It's just another Jewish trick. I think he's got something here. We continue. I have stated this difficulty freely, just as I suppose it has struck hundreds of minds, because I do not wish to shrink from any real difficulty in examining the Bible, but to see whether it can be fairly met. In meeting it, expositors have resorted to various explanations, most of them, as it seems to me, unsatisfactory. And it is not necessary to detail them. Dr. Berner, Doddridge, and some others suppose that the Apostle means to say that the promises made to Abraham were not only appropriated to one class of his descendants, that is, to those by Isaac, but they centered in one illustrious person, through whom all the rest are made partakers of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So, in other words, he's saying by inserting the word Christ, instead of leaving it as anointed as it should be, that somehow that collectivizes Israel under Christ. But that's not what the verse is saying. He already liberated us from our past sins at the cross. What more has to be done? And the Bible speaks of only one posterity except this falsely interpreted verse. Let's continue. This Doddridge admits, is the apostle says, in bad Greek or church Greek. But still he supposes that this is the true exposition. No, I mean, even Doddridge admits there's something wrong, at least the grammar is wrong, and the meaning of the word is wrong because we're talking about different posterities. Paul clearly says, this covenant is not made with different posterities, but only one posterity, namely the anointed people, Israel. But this just shows you, and the reason why I'm doing this, folks, is to demonstrate how shallow the Judeo-Christian theology really is. How terribly shallow. As one commentator said, modern Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep. That's how shallow it is. So let me repeat this. This Doddridge admits the apostle says in bad Greek. No, he didn't say it in any form of Greek. That's your false interpretation of what he is saying. And he says, but he still supposes that this is the true exposition. No, it is not. Noesset and Rosenmuller suppose that by the word sperma, seed here, is not meant the Messiah. That is correct. It's not the Messiah, but Christians in general. Oh, really? Christians? No. Israelites, do you see how they tamper with the translation, folks? Isn't it obvious how they've been tampering, especially in the New Testament, tampering with the translation? So, okay, so they understand that the word is singular, but it's collectively for all Christians, not Israelites. Well, since when 
we've got Christians of all faiths, of all races, of all nationalities. Can they replace Israel? I don't think so, folks. It's not just bad Greek. It's bad theology. It's bad logic. Anyway, he continues. But this is evidently in contradiction of the apostle. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that word of truth. This is, not just evidently, it is in contradiction of the apostle who expressly affirms that Christ was intended. No, he does not. Because that word Christ does not mean a single person Christ. It means the people of Israel taken collectively. It's a collective noun, just as the word posterity is a collective noun. Now, it's possible if you have only one child, you and your wife only have one child, that would be your posterity. But we know that the posterity is millions and millions and billions of us. So we know it can't. that's not possible, the intent here. Absolutely not possible. Okay. So, and this again, they even even Barnes fails here. It's apparent to me that he's not he's not comprehending what it's saying. Anyway, so the very point of the argument of the apostle is that the singular use and not the plural form of the word is a body, uh, and that therefore an individual and not a collective body of number of individuals intended. No, that's not the intention of Paul at all. That is the interpretation of horrible theologians. But according to this interpretation, the reference is, in fact, to a numerous body of individuals, not the whole body of Christians, the whole body of Israel. So they get the grammar right, but they get the people wrong. Jerome affirms that the apostle made use of a false argument. Oh, he did affirm that, huh? There's something wrong with this verse, folks, which although it might appear well enough to the stupid Galatians, (laughs) how about stupid Judeo-Christians, would not be approved by wiser learned men. That's according to Chandler. Borger endeavors to show that this was in accordance with the mode of speaking and writing among the Hebrews, and especially that the Jewish rabbis were accustomed to draw an argument like this from a singular number. Well, we don't want to adopt Jewish reasoning, do we? Okay? Again, all he's pointing out here, whether intentionally or not, is that there are major problems with the translation of this verse. And that the Hebrew word says, Zerah, seed, is often used by them, the Jews, in this manner. Well, just like they do with the word goyim. In Hebrew, the word goyim is always collective noun meaning nation. A nation is always a collective group of people. But the Jews use the word goy to refer to a single non-Jew. It is never used that way in the Bible, folks. Not once. So what do we care how the Jews use the word? If the Jews use it that way, it's obviously wrong. Okay? That the Hebrew word there is often used by them in this manner. See his remarks as quoted by Bloomfield. Okay, so we can, we can reject that argument too. 
So all of these arguments have problems, and we have demonstrated the various different problems that this verse exposes among various different theologians, okay? But he continues, But the objection to this is that though this might be common, yet it is not the less a quibble on the word, for certainly the very puerile reasoning of the Jewish rabbis, (laughs) puerile meaning infantile, the very infantile reasoning of the Jewish rabbis is no good authority on which to vindicate the authority of an apostle. Oh, man, what a wonderful statement. Locke and Clark suppose that this refers to Christ as the spiritual head of the mystical body. Okay, so at least they bring it. Well, what mystical body? Are these guys Catholic? And to all believers. Oh, again, t- talk about universalization of the, of the text of the word. Leclerc supposes that it is an allegorical kind of argument. Well, usually an allegory has a statement which is beyond, you know, has a story. There's no story here. It's just one word we're talking about that was suited to convince the Jews only who were accustomed to this kind of reasoning. Yeah, yeah, they are. They, they constantly conflate and confute and confound the language of Scripture. I do not know, but this solution may be satisfactory to many minds and that it is capable of indication since it is not easy to say how far it's proper, it is proper to make use of methods of argument used by an adversary in order to convince them. <laughs> okay, right? You want, you want to use a Jewish argument Can, to convince you of a, a Christian reality? You sure you want to do that? I don't think so, folks. So he continues, the argumentum ad hominem is certainly allowable to a certain extent when designed to show the legitimate tendency of the principles advanced by an opponent. But there is no evidence that Paul was reasoning with an adversary. He was showing the Galatians, not the Jews, what the truth was. And justice to the character of the apostle requires us to suppose that he would make use of only such arguments as are in accordance with the eternal principles of truth, and such as may seem seen to be true here in all countries and at all times. The question then is whether the argument of the apostle here drawn from the use of the singular word spermata is one that can be seen to be sound, or is it a mere quibble, as Jerome and Lecoeur suppose? How much time do I have? Okay. Or is it to be left to presume to have had a force which we cannot now trace? For this is also possible, he says. Socrates and Plato may have used arguments of a subtle nature based on some nice distinctions of words which were perfectly sound, but which we, from our necessary ignorance of the delicate shades of meaning in the language, cannot now understand. Perhaps the following remarks may show that there is a real force and proprietary, propriety rather, in the position which the apostle takes here. If not, then I confess my inability to explain the passage. Thank you for being honest, Mr. Barnes. Now, isn't it interesting that nowhere in this exposition so far does Mr. Barnes ever, it doesn't ever occur to him that maybe it's a bad translation? Is that, why does this idea not occur to any Judeo-Christians? Well, because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, don't you know? Therefore, it must be interpreted universally. It must be. It has to be. Because Paul is the 
apostle to the Gentiles. Okay? And we can't have an exclusive covenant be promoted in Galatians 3.16. We can't have that. Right? Judeo-Christianity will not have it. So we got, well, I'll just, uh, one more paragraph here, short paragraph. There, one, there can be no reasonable objection to the opinion that the promise of originally made to Abraham included the Messiah, but not to him. He's the mediator of the covenant, not the ob- object of the covenant. And the promised blessings were to descend through him. No, they were given to Israel. He was the one who confirmed the promises. He made the promises a reality. But he was not intended to be the promised one. In fact, if he was the promised one, he died in the process of of accepting the promise. This is so often affirmed, and no, it's not, that to deny it would be to deny the repeated declarations of the sacred writers. No, that, that Israel would have a Messiah, not the world at large, is the promise, folks. That's the promise. How can anybody get this wrong? But because the Judeo-Christian pulpit bastards have lied about this time and time again, and I'm just talking about Galatians 3.16, they do the same thing in Galatians 3.29, just as bad. So with so little time left, I'll give you the correct translation. As it stands, and what the meaning is, namely... Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his posterity. Posterity is about the only word that can be uh, pluralized without causing confusion. To his posterity. He does not say, and to posterities, as of many, different posterities, but rather to one posterity and to your posterity, that is, the anointed, the anointed people, Israel. That is the correct translation, folks. I hope you understand what I'm trying to convey to you. Thanks for listening. Take care. Yahweh bless everybody. Bye bye.